Welcome to the Podcrastinators, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer and of course, podcast presenter. And I'm Matt Danaher, I'm an amateur writer, traveller, podcaster and Instagram influencer and professional union organiser and socialist who likes to be optimistic about a future. Hi everybody and welcome to episode 5 of the Podcrastinators. Today we are exceptionally lucky to be joined by someone who was elected to council at 18, became the youngest MP in Parliament at 25 and has held his current seat for over nine years. Not only has he spent half of his life in politics, he's only 34 and runs New Zealand's newest political party. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining us, Jamie Lee Ross. G'day, good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Great to have you here. No, thank you very much. Obviously, it's been a massive seven days in politics, um, probably something that you've seen plenty of in your time. As a first question, what we'd really be keen to understand is obviously elected to council at 18. What in your life drove you to get into politics at such an early age? I think, uh, look, I I was one of those people who uh, left school early and was a little bit directionless, but I always had two interests uh, growing up, aviation and politics. I'm not entirely sure where the political interest came from. I I remember visits by like uh, Jim Bolger and Winston Peters um, school when when I was at a school called Dilworth School. Um, So I guess a bit of interaction there sparked a bit of an interest. But look, I I left school early. It wasn't quite for me. Um, I was interested in aviation. So I went to Ardmore Airport and jumped in the plane and started flying lessons and ended up with a commercial pilot license. And um, then I used to go along to the city council meetings. It was the Monaco City Council back before Auckland was amalgamated. Um, And I used to sit there and watch the council meetings. Bit of a geek. Very few teenagers do that. But looking down at all the councillors, there was... I think the average age was well over 50, probably into the 60s. I think there was only one guy in his 30s and the rest of them um, didn't really reflect the diversity of Monaco City. And I took the view that younger people deserved a voice on the council. You know, 40% of Monaco City was aged under 25. There was no real voice there, no representation. And um, the council needed some diversity. So not realising that most city councillors don't bother campaigning at all. I set about uh, campaigning for six months, pretty much full-time. I went and knocked on lots of doors. You learn a lot about your community when you go and knock on doors, speak to people face-to-face, one-on-one, and you get honest feedback and you get it directly from people. And that's what I did. I knocked on thousands of doors, um, suggested to people. I was open. I said, I'm young, give youth a voice on our uh, city council, and I won a seat there. Uh, I was re-elected twice in 2007 and 2010, when the council was amalgamated, and then I never expected to stand for parliament when I did in 2011. But uh, Pansy Wong resigned from parliament and I ended up uh, standing uh, there. I had decided when I was a teenager, I got interested in politics and I looked at Labour and Nationals manifestos and decided at the time I I felt I agreed more with the national parties. Um, I I described myself as relatively centrist um, so in terms of what I do now as an independent MP, I'm able to work with either side. And I actually think my local community gets more value out of me as an MP because I can work with both sides. Um, too often the, the parties are just stuck in their ways at one end of the spectrum and the MPs care more about the party than they do about getting good outcomes. I'm actually able to get more done. I can work with either side and I've got relationships on both sides of parliament now. So I think, um, I'm adding relatively uh, good value in terms of getting things done for my community now. That um, brings us on to another question then, because um, we might come back a little bit to, to your past, but I think you touched quite nicely there on, on the fact that you're in, you're, you've been sitting as independent for some time, and um, you've recently launched Advance New Zealand as a new political party. And um, I was just wondering about what kind of advantage does that bring for you and for your um, electorate? Um, being part of that party um, rather than being an independent? Yeah, I think you're probably um, framing the question uh, in the way I I would do it differently. So here's the history with 
small political parties in New Zealand. No minor party has gained election to the parliament without being led by a current or a former MP. There's been plenty of examples where new startups have failed. You've even had three examples where millionaires have thrown large chunks of money at new parties and all failed to get there. There's just something about the fact that incumbency through an electorate seat uh, gives voters the, the assurance, I guess, that they're not wasting their vote. And so I was acutely aware going into this election that firstly, there's uh, two big blocks of parties right now. MMP no longer has the diversity that it used to. There's no longer parties sitting in the middle that can work with either side. You basically got the left block and the right block. And, and I genuinely think having politicians that are quite centrist with policies that could work with the Labour government or could work with the national government actually adds value to the system. And so knowing that uh, as a current incumbent electorate MP, uh, with the ability to set something new up, to fill that gap where voter dissatisfaction right now is leading to the point where they're looking for something new, and as the National Party continues to fall and fail and do fairly uh, poorly when it comes to talking to New Zealanders, uh, I felt something in the middle uh, was necessary. It also, yeah, you've raised, is there an advantage um, for my community. Well, quite frankly, communities don't tend to elect in independents. No independent has won election to the parliament uh, in a general election, this side of World War II. So a community is typically looking for something uh, added. What's the added value? Uh, what's, what can I add more to Botany than just a national MP could? A national MP, uh, if they're elected, would end up in opposition, would be ineffective, would be a backbencher, they couldn't get much done. Uh, I can sit in the middle, I can work with both sides, and being part of a, a bigger organisation, albeit a minor party, um, I can make the argument to people that you've got more than just me. When Rodney Hyde stood for election in 2005 in Epsom and won that seat against the National Party because they didn't want him to win it at the time, he quite rightly made the argument that if you vote for me in Epsom, you'll get more, you'll get other MPs too. If you vote for me in Botany, you'll get me, who can work with either side, who won't be in opposition, who's a, who has experience in the electorate and can get more done for you. And you'll also uh, have a wider organisation, which realistically, um, once we get further down the track, could end up seeing other MPs coming in as well. MMP is great in that you can vote for the party you want to run the country, and you can vote for who you think will do best for you locally. And so my argument is, and will be later in the election too, a vote for me in Botany brings the experience of the area, someone local that lives there and can get more done, can work with the current government, won't be in opposition ineffective, uh, and you'll get other MPs alongside me as well. Is there a slight risk with that? Because obviously when you were last elected of Botany in 2017, you were a national. And, and what, I was, what I was getting at there, if, if your blue electorate, which voted you in in 17, thinks that you could side with the Labour Party. Is there any risk there for you, do you feel? Well, I'm already getting things done by working with Labour Party ministers. I'm already demonstrating an ability to work across the aisle. And you know what? I reckon uh, the approach that you're articulating, not saying it's your view, but that approach where people believe a political party owns a seat, there's a blue seat and a red seat, and it's always going to be that way. Well, that... that assumes voters aren't thinking individuals that can make their own mind up. I believe New Zealanders, New Zealand electors, are able to make their own minds up based on what they think is going to be best for their community and for the country. And if you're asking, are seats always blue or always red? Well, the low tide mark for both parties is actually 20%. Um, National proved that uh, in 2002. Labour got that low in polling in 2014. They ended up resulting slightly higher than that. But the low tide points, 20% roughly. That suggests that 60% of New Zealanders actually can swing, can move, can make their minds up on election day based on what they're offered. And with MMP, they can still vote for the party they want and then vote for the person that they think will give them the best value in their seat. And so I don't subscribe to the view that the National Party owns the botany seat. Sure, we won it three times, uh, four times, sorry, um, uh, as, as a national candidate. But New Zealanders and people in Botany can make their own mind up about who they want to represent them and will do the best for them.
the advanced New Zealand. Um, we'll come on to ask you a bit more about the party's policies in a minute, but do you think you're going to get registered in time? Yes. Uh, look, the membership's been coming through pretty fast. Uh, I've been very happy. It's coming through faster than I expected. In the first week, we had 150 people uh, agree to be members. We need to reach 500 members. Uh, COVID-19 did um, mean that we delayed uh, going out there publicly, uh, but we've been planning this uh, for some time. Uh, look, if we don't make 500 members, then it's all irrelevant and we should all just pack up and go home. But I'm pretty certain that the uh, issues that I've been raising so far around interference in our elections from foreign um, interference risks, from a need to reform some of our uh, donation policies, from a need to um, ensure that we realign our foreign affairs um, so we're not putting all of our eggs in, in, in one basket and we're getting back towards working with more of our traditional trading partners. Those types of issues, I think New Zealanders uh, broadly uh, think that they should be addressed. And so there's people out there wanting to join and wanting to take part. At, at what point has the party got to be registered by to stand as an electoral party? by the dissolution of parliament which is mid-august I, I read um, obviously the democracy policy and and you know uh, there's a few good things in there one thing that i read about was um, a, a very strong stance against anti-corruption is there enough of it going on in new, new zealand politics that the common man does not know about and should be concerned about look we're not a corrupt state like a third world country where you see overt corruption. That, that's not the case. Happy to say that. Uh, but there is a strong risk to New Zealand from foreign interference that we've been warned about by academics, that we've been warned about by our own spy agencies, that uh, there are nations out there that do attempt to interfere in, in the political parties and do and try to interfere in a democracy. Our donation regime is very open to abuse and is being abused in my view it is very easy and it has happened already where a foreign national with no interest in new zealand uh, except to work on behalf of the state that they're involved with can use a backdoor mechanism to fund new zealand political parties any person around the world can set up and register a company in new zealand and donate any sum of money that they like in 2017, uh, the National Party received $150,000 um, from a company linked to Inner Mongolia. Now, do you think a Inner Mongolia a businessman who can't speak English, out of the goodness of his heart, just wants to donate $150,000 to the current governing party after meeting the trade minister who sets policy in line with what his company does? I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> if, if you think that people who are bringing money out of China and filtering it through to companies, uh, through to political parties, where they've got links to the Chinese Communist Party. Do you think they're doing that out of the goodness of their heart? No. So I think we need to close that loophole. The government did, uh, with great fanfare, say we're banning foreign donations. All they did is they um, reduced the limit on overseas donations from $1,500 to $50. That does nothing though because anyone, as I said, can register a party. So, so that's a um, foreign interference threat um, that we're wide open to. There's also wider foreign interference risks that our spy agencies, and if you get time, go and read Anne-Marie Brady, Professor Anne-Marie Brady's um, Magic Weapons paper, where she, in about 40 or 50 pages, outlines how countries like New Zealand and Australia are at risk of that foreign interference. Nations... Uh, like China, like to influence the diaspora communities um, in a foreign state. Um, they do it quietly. They do it through links through Chinese organizations. They do it through their embassies and their diplomats. And they filter the Chinese Communist Party messages um, into the country. Now, I think people that come here and migrate here um, from China are coming because they want a better life and they want a, a new life and they like the freedoms and they like the democracy that we have. Uh, we can't allow ourselves to be interfered with and for that democracy to be eroded. And we can't allow the magic weapons, to use Anne-Marie Brady's term, we can't allow the magic weapons of a communist party regime um, to interfere with our country. 
And you might say, well, China trade is important. Yeah, it is. But we can't put all of our eggs in one basket because we are so close, because politicians in New Zealand are unquestioning when it comes to um, the Chinese Communist Party regime. We've actually cut ourselves off from a free trade agreement with the likes of the US, with the likes of the UK. We're at risk uh, as a country of putting all of our eggs in one basket and losing other opportunities. We once had the ANZUS alliance. We're not part of that properly uh, anymore. Um, we once had um, strong trade with the UK. That's gone backwards over a period of time. We have to reform and, and realign our foreign affairs policies so that we're not just assuming that we can get by with trading heavily with one country. I think um, some political interference we're seeing at the moment is obviously Australia have been a very strong voice in challenging the origin of COVID-19. Yeah, well, we're supposedly backing it, but um, obviously China are now taking exception to Australia in particular. Would, would you call that political interference? Absolutely. The Chinese ambassador in Australia effectively threatened their country um, when they were raising questions about the origins of COVID-19. Whether we like it or not, the world is in this situation because the Chinese Communist Party didn't manage COVID-19, coronavirus, as a health issue. They managed it as a political issue. I think uh, the, uh, who was it? The Mike Pence, US Secretary of State, referred to it as a classic case of communist disinformation. It was more about protecting um, the country's reputation than taking a health approach to it. And effectively, uh, the virus was exported uh, around the world. Australia raised questions about that, and they got hammered by the ambassador. New Zealand, uh, in just recently, last week, uh, said that the Taiwan should be admitted to the World Health Organization. Well, we currently, right now, have the New Zealand, the Chinese ambassador to New Zealand, um, questioning New Zealand and saying uh, we're not abiding by the One China policy as much as we should. You've got a foreign diplomat who is saying to the New Zealand government that if you support Taiwan being admitted to an international organization, you're not abiding by the One China policy um, and there could be issues for New Zealand in the future. These are problems that don't get reported enough, um, but I think more and more people are opening their minds to them. The interesting thing is that China has been, what people would say, important to New Zealand in a few ways. I've seen export companies like Fonterra, also, obviously, there's a lot of people wealthy on the back of property gain due to a lot of China um, sort of investment in the country. Do you think that's also causing a major issue with the sort of everyday New Zealander actually now finding their own country unaffordable? The housing issue is, is related to migration, but I don't think that migration alone is the issue with housing. Um, just if I can go back a step, housing is so important because all roads effectively lead back to the cost of housing. Poverty, you can track it back to the cost of housing. Um, issues to do with transport, you can usually track back to housing and affordability as well, and people trying to move outside of the, the metropolitan urban limits. Uh, effectively with housing, there's been several issues. The net migration's been too high and unsustainable from a housing perspective. We haven't built enough houses. Um, fast enough because we don't have enough people trained in the country to build housing and the red tape is uh, too, too extensive. The RMA does slow things down. It's good for environmental protection but it, it's not user-friendly when it comes to um, building and development. And then um, a fourth issue is the way in which councils approach infrastructure. Councils do not have an incentive to put infrastructure in for new housing developments because it effectively costs the council and they struggle to pay for it. So all of these things kind of collide and that's where you end up with a, a housing problem. Uh, I think it's easy to blame migration when it comes to housing. Um, migration will be few and far between now, um, given you know, so much unemployment. But when things get back to normal, whether it's in three years or five years or whatever, um, migration should be managed carefully. And I think we actually should have a migration policy but we also um, need to unlock the other issues that are causing housing problems. The RMA needs reforming, councils need to change the way they fund things, 
um, you also uh, need to ensure that there are more people available to build housing. Sorry, that was a long answer, but housing's pretty complex. Yeah, look, and um, obviously we saw Kiwi Build fail dramatically, and yet the government have then gone and almost announced Kiwi Build 2 um, a short while ago. Can a government actually influence home building to the level that the Labour Party are trying to? Kiwi Build failed because they weren't fixing the fundamental issues. They were just trying to patch it up by government getting involved in, in being the builders, but they didn't necessarily increase the number of people that are there doing building. They didn't change the RMA. They were just they were just basically entering the market as a property developer rather than changing the fundamentals uh, that are there. If government didn't want to change the fundamentals but just wanted to get involved in the property development market, um, I'd suggest the better way to do it is through a um, a shared ownership scheme where um, government steps up with a deposit um, to assist people and then um, walks away later once if their properties are appreciated in value. Uh, but if you don't fix the RMA, if you don't fix the way councils fund infrastructure, then you're never really going to fix the housing issue. We don't need to be unaffordable. There are plenty of cities around the world that don't have the affordability issues. But if you look at the um, Demographia report, it's a report which compares cities around the world. Um, housing costs escalate fast, usually, when there's an artificial constraint on the land. It's not the value of the not the cost of building which goes up, it's the value of the land that goes up. If you create an artificial um, you know, lack of supply of land, then you are going to end up seeing property values go up because the land cost goes up. Coming back to the um, China issue, I know that um, one of your um, one of advanced New Zealand's policies is around introducing a 10-year citizenship um, rule. So what you're saying is people have to be citizens for 10 years or more before they can become MPs. I was just wondering how much that's influenced by their presence on in the National Party benches of a former Chinese government agent, or at least a, a, an employee of the um, Chinese government's spy school, um, who obviously came and uh, pledged allegiance to this country and then got elected to parliament fairly quickly without maybe being entirely forthcoming about their background. That's a symptom of the MMP system where you uh, have the party lists where parties uh, can ramp people up the list fairly easily. Uh, effectively, what we're saying is there should be commitment to the country. Now, most people have to go through a lengthy process to become citizens, but a government can fast track citizenship. A government, governing party, can also, once someone's a citizen, put them high up the list and get them into parliament. The entry to New Zealand politics and the amount of commitment you have to show to this country actually isn't high. And so we're saying, if you want to stand for parliament, if you want to be one of 120 people to get to write and vote on laws in this country, you should have shown commitment to this country first. And so that's where we're proposing a 10-year minimum citizenship. The other part of it, though, is the funding and the donation rules. If you fix the donation rules, uh, you also resolve a lot of these issues. So in the case that you mentioned, um, because of the fundraising abilities of that particular candidate, uh, he was able to get pushed high up the list. The big parties use MPs like that to raise money. Ask yourself what is the uh, appreciable outcomes that um, that particular MP has achieved in the now nine years that he's been in Parliament. I don't think you could probably point to many other than the fact that there's been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of money uh, raised. That influences who gets into Parliament. If you ask the average person, should you gain a place in Parliament because you can fundraise large sums of money for your political party? <laughs> I think most people would say no. Uh, if you ask people, should you be able to get elected to the Parliament if you didn't disclose fully your links to training spies for a military intelligence agency and you were fast-tracked into Parliament after not revealing that properly, would most people agree with that? I, I don't think they would. And so no system can be perfect, but we think showing commitment to New Zealand is fundamental um, if you want to serve in the New Zealand Parliament. This isn't extraordinary. There are some countries that say you have to be born in the country before you can get heavily involved at the highest levels of politics. Uh, we're just simply saying our relatively um, lax system right now uh, should be beefed up and there should be more of a commitment shown. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions on that because obviously Australia is very strict on who can enter Parliament. 
um, as dual citizenship. Dual citizenship. So <laughs> would you go as far as that or would you respect the country in which people are born as long as they've given significant allegiance to significant allegiance to New Zealand? No, I think that's going too far. And um, you also have a lot of legal issues that Australia has seen where um, someone has conferred citizenship by virtue of a legal change in their own the country they originally were from. And then they uh, all of a sudden are kicked out of parliament. That's probably going too far. Um, should you renounce all citizenship uh, outside of New Zealand? I don't think so. I mean, a good example, um, my wife's got British citizenship. Our kids get British citizenship. Um, if she wanted to stand for Parliament before we had kids, should she renounce that British citizenship, which would have meant our kids were cut off? Uh, that's a very big, big uh, issue that people would have to, to face. I think showing commitment by being here for an extended period of time, 10 years as a citizen, is sufficient. As part of that, did uh, you ever think about making voting compulsory as part of um, your document? Yeah, it's an issue that, that gets raised from time to time. Uh, I personally think not voting is a legitimate democratic choice that, that you might want to make. Uh, I'm not sure that you'd get 100% voting anyway, even if you made it compulsory. I'm not sure what the stats are uh, in New Zealand, but I, I've got some family over there and I remember them saying some of their friends just would rather pay the money than actually vote. It's a bit of a protest. So I think not voting is a legitimate choice. Um, if you had compulsory voting and people wanted to protest it and not pay the money, they probably just wouldn't enrol to vote. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing either. No, um, I think the biggest draw to voting in Australia is um, is the sausage sizzle. You know, you get a free uh, sausage and bread for voting. Oh, that sounds like uh, bribery. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I, um, I, I mean, my personal view is I think voting is one of the most democratic things you could do and and there's a lot of people fought very hard for the right to it and i think it also takes you know um myself and matter also from a, a british background and just seeing the argument over brexit was more about the amount of people that didn't vote so therefore it wasn't legitimate rather than the democratic process that people voted for yeah but people will find holes to pick in anything if they want not I true. mean, Winston, the MMP system ended up with an outcome where the second largest party in Parliament ended up running the government. A lot of people don't like that, but that's just kind of the system we have. You can't complain about the system afterwards if you get an outcome you don't like. And I noticed in the, um, in the dem dem democracy document that you've actually proposed that MMP go to referendum in 2023. Yes. Uh, does, does that create any risk? for the likes of yourself and ACT if MMP was abolished? Abolishing MMP or voters choosing to depart from MMP doesn't mean you go back to first past the post necessarily. Uh, when it was last proposed, um, things were very stable in the country and, and uh, I think people have had an opportunity to see MMP working a bit differently now. And uh, I'm not saying that MMP should definitely change. I might even vote for MMP to stay myself. But I just think from time to time, uh, New Zealanders should have the opportunity to consider uh, these issues. You know, 42%, I think, of people said last time they wanted to uh, ditch MMP and go to something else. So it's not as if it's a fringe issue that very few people want to move away from MMP. Um, you know, two-fifths two of the country last time said, hey, we want to consider this and do something different. Would it be 50% now? Would it be 60%? I don't know. But I think people should have that opportunity from time to time. It's interesting. It does feel like we're in, you know, it's not just current polling, but the long term trends do feel like New Zealand's heading in the direction of having has got two overwhelmingly dominant parties. And despite the existence of MMP, those other the other parties do have an issue um, getting in on that action. And in fact, you said yourself, you know, nobody successfully launched the party without having an MP first. It does it does make me think that MMP is is not necessarily the sort of guarantor of a pluralistic multi-party system that people think it is. No, and you're you're probably pointing to the threshold issue there, which is um, a big uh, problem um, for our system. It's probably too high. Remember, MMP was developed so that no party could govern alone in Germany. That's where MMP came from. After the World War II, when the atrocities of uh, that country um, took place uh, with the Nazi party, 
there was a system developed that would result in multi-party government where no party could govern alone. And so we have a system uh, that's designed for that. The issue is our 5% threshold in our environment is pretty high and hard for parties to cross. And so, um, and every party that exists has effectively been started by an MP that fell out or, or ended up having a conflict with Labour or National. New Zealand First came out of National. The Greens came out of Labour came, which, and came out of the Alliance as well. Um, the ACT Party came out of Labour. Um, the Māori Party came out of Labour. Um, the, the, the parties always start from an MP um, departing from Labour or National. Is that the way it should be? Well, you would have had other parties if the threshold was lower. Are we proposing that? No, it just looks self-serving. Um, I think the 4% threshold probably is a better place to go. Some people make the argument that if you uh, get enough vote that you can get one MP out of 120, that should be where it is. You effectively have that already with the one seat threshold um, for parties to get into Parliament on. And that's how ACT uh, survives right now. You know, Future survived that way. Um, oh, I think these things should be looked at further. But fundamentally, New Zealanders should make these decisions by way of a referendum, not politicians. Would you propose that referendums become binding? We have proposed that um, at a supermajority, I guess. Look, I'm not saying Parliament should devolve everything to referendum. That's going too far. We don't want the Swiss model. But I do believe we're citizens have initiated a referendum and it's gone to the public and people have voted in an overwhelming majority. New Zealand politicians shouldn't be able to just ignore uh, people. We're also proposing a veto referendum mechanism um, whereby if a large majority of people felt that parliament got a law wrong, then they could initiate a referendum and effectively veto that. That does happen in other countries around the world and Europe happens in the US as well. Interestingly, very few laws actually get vetoed, but having the ability for people to organize and stand up and say, no politician, you did this wrong. We're not happy with that. We want to test it in public. I think that's a democratic uh, principle that's worth pursuing. Politicians don't get everything right. Politicians are not perfect. Our parliament also has very few constraints, very few checks and balances. Our parliament can pass laws, okay, a couple of weeks ago, our parliament did pass a law so fast that the MPs didn't realise they were passing the wrong law. Our parliament needs greater checks and balances and scrutinies on it. And I think a veto referendum mechanism is one worth pursuing. And so we're putting it to people and asking what they think. Lots of countries have bicameral, two-chamber kind of parliament. New Zealand, the kind of the answer is to have three-year terms uh, and MMP to kind of address that accountability issue, but it doesn't always feel like that's enough. And it could be, and nobody's going to campaign for an upper house, right? Because no one wants more full-time salaried um, politicians. But um, unfortunately, but um, yeah, referendums could be one of those ways of squaring that circle. The other thing with our democracy, political parties and the governments tend to have very slim majorities. John Key used to govern with effectively a one-seat majority. The current government has a three-seat majority. Our parliament is small, so the majorities are slim. One or two or three MPs stepping out of line can destabilise government in New Zealand. So you don't actually get free-thinking members of parliament. You go to the US, go to the UK, even Australia. You get MPs who openly question their own party that they're from if they're in government. I think that's healthy. It never happens in New Zealand though. It's because we have such a tight grip. The parties have such a tight grip on MPs that no one ever speaks out of turn. And you might say, well, the politician's answer is usually, oh, we have robust debates within our caucus. No, we don't. I was the chief whip for the National Party for some time. Um, our caucus meetings are where rubber stamp exercises. No one questions the leader. That's not healthy. That's not democratic. Um, if you had, I'm not, not proposing this, I'm just going hypothetically here, but if our parliament was larger, you'd get more people speaking out. You'd get more free thinking. You'd get more contestability of ideas. You don't get that contestability of ideas in the New Zealand parliament. Um, I'm not saying 650 MPs uh, like the UK or... 535 like the US is the way to go um, but 120 
with slim majorities for governments doesn't lead to much contestability of ideas. I think as well, if you look at Australia, the problem there is, of course, they have state, federal, and, and just through the COVID management, they've struggled to get things done, even with having two different sets of um, governments effectively, because one state wants to close its borders, another one wants free trade, another one wants to do this. I mean, you even need different driving licenses for different states. I mean, that's taking it too far, though, surely? The, the, that's the, the issue with the federation, I guess. The federation allows states to do their own thing in the local level, but sometimes those conflicts arise where it's not healthy for the, literally in this case, not healthy for the country. Um, no system's perfect though. Um, we've done well, we've been pretty lucky. We've benefited from our extensive water borders where it's hard to get here unless you come by plane and we can turn the planes away and close the border that way. We're, we're lucky though. The, Prime Minister's done well in terms of the health response, but, but we've, we've benefited a lot by our geography. Coming back to you a little bit, um, Jamie Lee, um, of course, you just referred to being the whip, um, and obviously you started off as a junior whip, I think, and then worked your way up to become the party whip. Um, and uh, we've already talked a bit about you being a young politician. What's that like, being a young whip, trying to make those kind of older big beasts who have maybe run successful companies before becoming... Um, MPs, what's it like making them toe the line or is it in fact that your problem was solved by what you've already said about that small majority and people just naturally caving? Yeah, our whipping system is strong and the party discipline is usually pretty strong and so um, I guess when you join up with Labour or National you consent to being whipped and told what to do and I guess the whip also derives their authority from the leadership in the caucus. So if uh, whips not performing, the leader can propose someone different. Uh, and there's been cases where whips haven't lasted um, very long. But typically the, the whip has the consent of the caucus to tell them what to do. Um, so you get very few people causing issues in that respect. Having said that, you know, when you're in government and you've got, you know, a senior minister who's used to getting their way with officials and you're the whip and you have to ask them to do something that they don't particularly like yeah, they can be pretty frank with what they think and have to say um but i'd like to think that when i was the whip i got on relatively well with the other mps uh, of course when your party is doing well in the polls people are happy to go along with what's best for the party and the issue for the national party that they'll be experiencing right now is they're experiencing a lack of discipline experiencing people exercising free thought because they're thinking about their own jobs and their own ability to continue in the parliament and so um, they're losing um, the ability to control things and that's because they're, they're becoming more and more unpopular so the national party whip right now won't have the same type of control over the mps like the labor party whip does and the other threat that sits there and if we're talking theoretically again about our system the political parties control who gets into parliament mostly. You don't get independent thought because you're at risk of the political party turning on you. And if you're a list MP, you don't get back in if you don't get on the list. If you're an electorate MP, the board of the National Party can deselect you whenever they want for whatever reason they want and you no longer get elected to the parliament. So that's, that's a problem with our system too, I think. It's good that you touch on what's going on in the National Party at the moment because obviously that's huge news this week. Do you feel the issues with the National Party lie with the leadership or with the messaging? Both. I think, if you go back a step and think about um, how John Key won election. Now, whether you like John Key or not, let's just look at his approach. He went for the middle ground, the median voter. Jacinda Ardern's doing that as well. You win elections, if you're a big party, by going for the centre ground. Now, the issue for National is they're tacking to the right. It actually happens with every party after they've been in government. Labour, when once they've been in government, tax to the left because their supporters are annoyed that they lost government. Their supporters start to look for other opportunities. So the parties tack to their left or tack to their right if they're national to shore up their base and make people happy. But they don't come back to the centre fast enough to be able to keep those centre voters there. So national has tacked to the right to keep their core supporters happy to not lose those supporters elsewhere um simon is pretty conservative in his approach 
And uh, the problem too is uh, National went from a very likable leader to Bill, who, who still had the credibility of being Deputy Prime Minister, to someone that the public ended up deciding they didn't like um, very much. Now, I, I might have helped um, with that uh, in some respects, um, if you want to think about 2018. But that was already showing up in our polling. Um, Simon Bridges is more disliked than David Cunliffe was in 2014. It's pretty hard to achieve, by the way. Um, but Simon's net negatives, that's the number of people saying they, they think he's doing a good job to the number of people saying he's doing a bad job. His net negatives, um, his, net, his net favorability turned negative within a couple of months. And it was all downhill from there. And so they went too far to the right. They became too conservative. Uh, they, they ended up annoying people. And then Simon's just not connecting. Can they turn that around with a new leader, though? And um, we, we're talking about this on Thursday, um, so before their leadership election. Uh, can they turn it around? Well, I think if they went from someone that the public deeply dislikes to someone that the public has no idea who he is, then they'll just have the same issues, but from a different angle. Do you think the national vote will corral near the election, though, with the thought of another three years of Jacinda Ardern? No, I think these things can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. What we've seen in the past, when National in 2002 was polling at 30% in April, by July they landed at 21. Labour uh, in 2014 and before Jacinda became leader in 2017, they were in the 20s and then the vote starts to collapse. Andrew Little left the leadership because their vote was just collapsing because people thought, well, you're not going to win anyway. I don't want to go and vote national or I don't want to go and vote Labour if you're talking about this year. Um, but I want to look at the alternatives and what's out there. And so that's where you'll see ACT pop up. You'll see New Zealand First pop up. You'll see the minor parties that are existing that have a realistic chance of getting into parliament or staying in parliament, that's where you'll see them um, come up. So I don't think National's vote will come back unless they do something radical, but I'm not sure Todd Muller's radical. I'm actually not sure they've got anyone there who could really connect with middle voters. And Jacinda's just doing so well off the back of um, COVID-19. And, you know, her government's had some flaws and problems along the way. But at the end of the day, People will walk into the polling booth and they'll go, do I want her to continue as prime minister or do I want him to be my new prime minister? If they really don't like him, in the case of Simon, or they just have no idea who he is in the case of Todd Muller, then they'll probably end up going, better the devil I know than the devil I don't. Yeah, it's interesting. I read a lot on social media where people go, it's about the party. That's not healthy reading social media. <laughs> No, I know. I'm trying to wean myself off it. Um, and you certainly don't believe everything you read on it either. But there's a lot of people going, it's about the party vote. It's not about the leader. But ultimately, if you don't trust the person that's going to represent you, I still don't know how you vote for the party. The party vote, whilst in theory is about the party's policies, if you're a Labour or a national voter and you don't vote for minor parties, you're voting for who you want to be Prime Minister. And in fact, if you're voting Greens or ACT, um, and mostly with New Zealand First, because they're fully on the Labour side now, you're voting for who you want to be the Prime Minister, as well as the, the policies um, that you might like. So, you know, people still, we've become very presidential in our approach. Never used to be the way. First past the post, um, individual candidates on the ground have more of an influence than they do right now. But our system's very presidential. You, you select who you want to be Prime Minister by way of the party vote. I mean, one interesting point uh, you made there is who could be the next national leader. Someone who's heavily touted, of course, is Christopher Luxon, who's, of course, going to be standing against you in Botany. Do you see any national party tactics there of why they chose Luxon for Botany? Well, it'll be in part because of a deep dislike that, that Simon and Paula Bennett have um, for me. But my issue is not with the national party. My issue was uh, very personal related to those guys and... Political parties are like cults. You go up against the cult, you, the cult excises you. And so I went up against the cult leader and got turfed out. Uh, in terms of um, Mr Luxon, I'm actually quite comfortable because, one, he's going to get in on the list anyway. So he is going to be there 
voters who like National and think he's going to be a leader one day, um, they can vote for the National Party and he'll get in on the list. They have in me someone local who can get things done for them. You can have the best, if you're a national voter who thinks I've done a good job locally for you, you can get the best of both worlds in voting national. You, you'll get Luxon anyway, and then vote for me and you'll get me uh, as your local MP and probably some other MPs alongside me uh, as well. So you have the ability under MMP to, to have that. In terms of the local ground game, I know the media take the approach that nationals got that seat and forever after will. Well, as I said before, I think voters can make their own choice up. I'm also local and I focus a lot of effort in the local community. Um, with respect, Mr. Luxon isn't from here, doesn't live here, has not uh, spent any time even campaigning in the local area. How he thinks, well, I think it's a bit arrogant actually, just to think you can just rock up a parachute in by way of a political party and then all of a sudden be an MP when you've spent no time here. I'm happy to put my local credentials up as someone who works hard locally and someone that locals know uh, to the test as well. Yeah, it's definitely, that was something I was thinking about, Luxton. If you live in Botany, why would you vote for somebody who's come straight from being chief exec of Air New Zealand to being wannabe prime minister? You know, what kind of, you know, what interest has he got in Botany? Um, it's seen as a safe blue seat. It's kind of probably something that does benefit you to some extent, I would have thought, as the incumbent. No seat safe, though, you know, in, oh, 1980, no, in 1987, the seat of Remuera got close to being marginal. Um, <laughs> Remuera. Um, yeah. There were seats which are held by now by a national that have solid majorities that used to be Labour not that long ago. The seat of Waimakariri has a 10,000 national majority. It was held by Labour two elections ago. 2005, 2002, national lost a lot of seats. So no seat is safe. No seat should be taken for granted. No voters should be arrogantly taken for granted by a political party. Do you feel they've put a high-profile candidate in there because they are fearful that you could work with Labour? Oh, do that trick that the TV News did uh, last night with Simon Bridges' face and Todd Muller's face. I'd be happy to wager that if you took our two faces out to Botany voters, more people would know me than him. And with you launching a party, is that a signal that you've got a, a, a high political ambition? And do you intend on standing more than one candidate at the upcoming election? Oh, absolutely. You don't have a political party just for one person. I might be the base, uh, the person who's involved in setting it up. Uh, maybe the seat of botany that I hold is, is the base to launch something off the back of. But it's got to be more than one person. Uh, look, in the first week, we had 150 people wanting to be members. The membership's growing and has grown since that point. Um, there are other people who have expressed interest in being candidates. So, look, I, I, I think I said in the media last week, um, I reckon we'll have 20 to 30 candidates. Oh, I think that that's quite realistic. Um, you know, Darren, if you want to stand for a party that's uh, not failing like national, you're welcome to come on board if you want to be a candidate. I may well take you up on that offer, but could you just hold off on the 10-year rule for a little while, please? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've only got three years to go, but I don't really want to wait till the next election. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I'm but, not, I'll come out and canvas. I'll come out and canvas against you, Darren. Don't worry. <laughs> no, thank you very much indeed. You, you'll mobilise the union movement against them. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> so, do you think the general election should be delayed in light of what's going on at the moment? Yeah, I don't think we can have a proper election campaign. Uh, and remember, you elect the parliament for three years about issues wider than um, COVID nineteen. Uh, look, the Prime Minister's done a relatively good job. Don't agree with every decision, obviously, um, but I think broadly they've made the right calls on particularly around the lockdown. But an election shouldn't just be about one issue. It should be about a broader, sense, broader set of issues. And right now, politicians can't come out and campaign properly and the voters don't have the opportunity to go to meetings and listen to uh, MPs. Not that that happens as much these days, but still. If you're a 70-year-old who likes going to your local grey power meeting to hear the candidates, you can't do that right now because you've considered that risk and those meetings won't go ahead. Oh, look, I, I totally agree. And, and going back to Jacinda Ardern's stratospheric rating at the moment, which I think has been incorrectly reported as the most popular PM in a century, 
Um, was that really unexpected, though, that given the landscape that she was going to poll that high? But she was there anyway. The National Party leader was down in the single digits, around 10% anyway. Um, so, look, it's just an extension of where things were at previously. It will be easy when Simon Bridges wakes up either this weekend or after the election and go, I didn't get there, I've just lost my job. It'll be easy for him to go, well, it's all because of COVID-19. No, he was fundamentally um, disliked before that. And the, the National Party's not offering a vision to New Zealanders that they want to believe in. They're moving away from the centre ground. And New Zealand's relatively centrist. New Zealanders are relatively centrist, I think. I don't think we're hard. We're not America where you're lifelong Democrat or lifelong Republican and never the twain shall meet. Um, it's probably a bit like that in the UK too, I'm, I'm guessing. But in New Zealand, I don't think people are that entrenched. But moving away from the centre ground, you lose popularity, you lose support. I think for me, I mean, not that I would, you know, it'd be a, it'd be a cold day in hell before I'd vote for National anyway. But for me, it was a, it's a struggle to even identify. <laughs> it's a struggle to even identify what their vision has been over the last three years. You know, I actually, honestly, and as someone who you know is pays quite close attention to politics, including what what the opposition is saying, you know, I can't really articulate their vision. If you want to be prime minister of the country, you need to believe in more than just the other side's bad, and you'd do better. That's what it comes down to. Where's the promised land? How are you going to get there? What's what? What are you going to solve? What, um, you know, Jacinda could sell a vision. John Key could sell a vision. Helen Clark could sell a vision. David Cunliffe couldn't. John Brash couldn't. Simon Bridges can't. That's the issue that's that exists there. Take me to the promised land. What is the promised land? How are you going to get me there? You can't sell that. You can't be prime minister. I'm not saying every politician needs to do that because very few people get to serve as prime minister, but. You know, if you want to lead the country, lead the nation, show me how you're going to get there. On that note, what are the biggest political challenges and opportunities over the next six to 12 months for New Zealand, do you reckon? Well, it's going to be recovering the economy and um, ensuring that we have a long-term future uh, for New Zealand. Uh, now, sure, you might say we haven't, as Advanced New Zealand, touched on those issues yet. Um, we've only released uh, our first policy and there's going to be more to come. But we need to turn our minds fairly quickly to how the economy recovers. The government outlined a lot of money in the budget, but they didn't outline how they're going to spend it. And you know the wage subsidy, for example? It's kind of just plugging a gap. It's, it's a good short-term, um, you know, electric shock while the country and economy is in cardiac arrest, but it's not a long-term solution. So I think it's going to come down to um, you know, big projects, big infrastructure projects, big visionary um, projects that are going to create jobs, going to lead to government investment, uh, but also have long-term outcomes as well. And they've got to be outside of Auckland, they've got to be around the country. And, and, and I'm thinking the types of, you know, like Northport, getting that fast-tracked. I'm talking about um, some of the, you know, uh, natural resources we might have on the West Coast. Um, you know, a big, a really good example of a big project the government took on decades ago that's long-lasting was the Clyde Dam. It built lots of, uh, created lots of jobs. It's a long-term infrastructure asset that we have. I also think, and this is where we've touched on already, we need to turn our minds to where our place in the world is and how we angle ourselves because we're closed down right now. We have to open up eventually. How do we trust nations in the world whilst there's uh, still a whole lot of issues going on with regards to COVID-19. Could this last several years? Possibly. Uh, which countries can we trust? Good question. We have pretty good connections with our Five Eyes partners, our traditional partners, the UK, the US, Australia, Canada. We're talking right now about a trans-Tasman bubble. We could have a trans-Pacific um, bubble. Those nations in our backyard we can work with well. But we also need to turn our minds more to our traditional partners that we can trust, we do work with well, uh, that we can trade with. And I think a lot of New Zealanders uh, would be happy to realign back to more of our tradition, especially with the UK uh, coming out of Brexit, uh, wanting to see opportunities around the world, especially with the US concerned about um, the rise of other nations. 
there are opportunities there for us that we have to open our minds up to. Do you think there'd be nervousness with New Zealanders partnering back up with the UK, considering what happened in the 1970s when the UK um, joined the common market? No, I, thought, I, I don't think that really would impact New Zealanders' thinking um, too much uh, that we've been departing from um, over the years. Um, every country is going to have their own domestic issues, but what's the broad approach the nation takes to the rest of the world and the UK is a democratic nation that we can work well with and trust. You said that um, you didn't agree with every decision. If you'd have been in government or, or, or as part of the, that process, what things would you have advocated for different to what the current government did during the COVID I, management? I think the border probably should have been shut down quicker, um, probably could have ramped up testing uh, faster, but these are things in hindsight. Um, it's, it's easy to say in hindsight there were fast decisions being made uh, in a difficult circumstance where the Prime Minister had to make some tough calls that had never really been made before. So easy to say in hindsight should have done things faster. Broadly though, they, they made the right calls. Um, you know, the, she would have been sitting there with official advice going, you need to shut the border. And at the same time, probably Treasury advice saying, you shut the border and you're buggering your economy for a long time hard decisions to make the other area that i think they've got wrong and i voted against the recent um health measures bill the COVID 19 health measures response bill i think they've got the enforcement powers way wrong there it goes too far um yeah, you have <laughs> right if you have a yeah. birthday party for your kids and you've got 11 people there and your neighbor goes and calls the police and says you've got a birthday party with 11 people um, the police or an enforcement officer who's not a police officer can enter your home without a warrant and break your party up. Sure, if someone's going to have a big conference of a thousand people while COVID-19 is still floating around, cool, go and sort them out because they're not doing the right thing by the nation. But no warrantless entry into personal private property without even the police officer involved, I think that's going too far. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you'd kind of hope the Greens would protect us from happening, but um, they seem to have been asleep on the job. Small parties give up uh, their own views and, and, and issues quite often when they go into coalition. That's how small parties end up failing after being in coalition too. That is, every, uh, Winston's oh, Winston, been in, yes. every time Winston's been in government, he's landed below 5%. Um, whether he will this time or not, who knows? The interesting part about Winston, the latest poll suggested that Labour would get 73 seats or 75 seats in Parliament. Is that a bigger concern for Simon Bridges or a bigger concern for Winston Peters? At that, neither party really has a use for Winston Peters and New Zealand First. Oh, it's never happened though before. No one's ever governed alone. Remember what I said earlier about MMP being designed to stop single party government? I think there's a likelihood that the um, the electorate will pull back on that. It's just a poll, a uh, point in time, it'll, it'll come back again. What would today's Jamie Lee Ross tell the 18-year-old Jamie Lee Ross? Oh, don't get into politics so early. I, I do think having more life experience benefits people. Um, rightly or wrongly, I, I have been in politics for quite some time and I love my family and my kids and everything, but um, uh, look, if I was... When 18-year-olds ask me about getting involved in politics, I, I do tell them to go and do a few other things first. Um, I'm not saying I've made all the wrong decisions, but um, I probably could do even more and do even better should I had I done a few other things beforehand. High points of the budget and anything that you think that really got missed? Oh, look, it was always going to be about economic recovery and how we do it and how we get there. They announced a large amount of spending, but they didn't announce how or where it was, a vast majority of it was going to be spent. They probably needed uh, more detail there. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not as concerned about the borrowing. Um, it's very easy for National to go on about borrowing. Cost of borrowing for governments at an all-time low. Governments save up and get their books in order and pay down debt for a rainy day. Well, it's not just raining. We've got you know, torrential thunderstorms for a long period of time. So government was always going to have to borrow. Um, I just think we need to get those infrastructure plans in place, know what we're doing, do long-term visionary projects that um, are around the regions that create jobs and have housing associated with it that have other um, connecting infrastructure associated with them. And so those are the long-term um, changes that uh, we should be looking at. You know, another good example, 
um, there's a need in Auckland to get away from just being CBD focused. Uh, some people suggest a, a second um, city uh, to the south, open up large chunks of land and put infrastructure in place and start from scratch and get the planning right so it's not piecemeal like we have around Auckland. If there was ever a time to loosen the RMA and get government involved in infrastructure building on something like that, where you can get um, a new jobs hub open, where you can get a new uh, smaller CBD, now's the time to do that. Um, that's the type of stuff government has to lead the way on because you can't just leave that to the private sector or local authorities. Local authorities, as I say again, are not incentivized to look at big visionary projects like that. That's right. I'm with you, with you on that southern city. I think it was a great idea. Oh, totally. You can see it happening in Sydney at the moment where they're opening up Parramatta as the second city in Sydney and a second airport. It's going to totally open that city up. You can't expect transport solutions to, or solving of transport congestion in Auckland if you still try and bring everyone into the CBD. It doesn't work. And I think that's what they noticed in Sydney because you look at Sydney and Auckland, they're both, their current CBDs sit on water with very limited options for increased infrastructure other than tunnelling or something like that. So to move it out and away is the only way I think you can open up a city like that. Um, I noticed in Parliament last week you um, put a vote that there should be a rate freeze for both businesses um, and personal, which I thought was an, a great idea. Obviously, David Seymour supported, which was excellent. Huge disappointment, especially in National, that they didn't support that. Why do you think that didn't get the support that it should have, not just from National, but also from Labour? That would have been a highly popular um, vote to the general public and small business. Yeah, I thought it was reasonable because uh, people are hurting right now. Uh, everyone's going to be opening up their rates bill in kind of June or July and going, oh, yeah, another increase from a local authority. And every organisation out there in the country is having to look at their budgets and their balance sheets and work out um, what they need to pull back on and make changes on. And, you know, there's a lot of nice-to-haves in local authorities that aren't important when people can't pay their mortgage. And so I just thought, uh, it's not just a goodwill gesture, it's, it's a realistic uh, gesture that local government themselves can make and still can make if they want. Um, but local government's a creature of statute. It's, it's, uh, everything it does is because parliament's passed laws saying it can do it and should do it. Parliament should pass a law saying you should deliver a, a rates freeze to just give people a little bit more breathing room. It's not going to change the world, but every little bit helps if you can't pay the mortgage, if you can't put food on the table. Um, and local authorities need to be pushed into pulling back some of their costs too. Especially when we see the Auckland Council salary uh, information that got released. Um, there seems to be a considerable amount of um, salary and overhead in that council. Someone sent me a link to a art competition that the council's got running at the moment where they're spending several hundred thousand dollars on art installations. And I thought to myself, why is the council spending several hundred thousand dollars on art installations when people are losing their jobs and can't pay them the, the mortgage or pay their rates? It's a nice to have, not important in a crisis when people are losing their jobs. Those are the types of things local authorities can pull back on. I'm not saying I'm opposed to the arts. I'm saying I'm opposed to that type of spending in difficult times. Totally agree, especially when no one can actually go out to see them. <laughs> they will eventually, but... Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, just sorry, the last couple from me. Obviously, your your policy release yesterday heavily focused towards democracy. What is your view on prisoner voting reform? Um, like I think I voted against, uh, sorry, I voted for the prisoner voting ban. I was a national MP at the time. Um, my vote would have been cast against the first reading, token it up again. Hard one. You lose rights when you go into prison, but it's... Um, I'm sounding like a politician sitting on the fence right now. You know what? I'm genuinely <laughs> undecided uh, on that legislation when it comes back. Uh, I can see both arguments. I can see the merits of both. I probably would lean towards no to prisoner voting uh, if I was to um, have to cast a vote right now, but I think it's something that's worthwhile exploring further. Here's the thing, though. This is more important. It goes back to um, one of the things that we're proposing is a written constitution. Parliament should not be able to change electoral rights by a slim majority in parliament and take rights away or change a system or do anything like that. We're proposing an MMP referendum. Um, that should only be done by the people deciding or a super majority in parliament. Parliament, if it wants, can do anything. If the parliament, if Jacinda woke up tomorrow and said, 
let's just delay the election and have a four-year term this time around, and hey, we'll do four-year terms all the time, they can do that. There's no constraint on that. If politicians decided that they wanted to, and this is what happened, an upper house is created or in the 1950s is abolished, they can do that because there's no constraint, no written constitution. And so whether you agree with prisoner voting or not, what I would hope most people would agree on is that parliament shouldn't be able to, by slim majority, just take away the rights of, of someone when it comes to voting. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, talk about, about yourself, the party, the seat? Anything all that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered off yet? I think we've covered everything pretty hard. We've got pretty hard, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I probably gave you answers that are far too long. but No, no, that's, no, that's all good. I, I'm, I'm hoping that's what our listeners will want. Um, and I'm hoping that's what we'll get off other guests as well. So, Jamie Lee Ross, um, you've been a really interesting guest. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Uh, Great to be with you. Appreciate your time. Really appreciate it. I might actually give you a call if you hold off that 10 years. 